All right. Well, for some reason, um, Samara, my youngest, likes to ask me to tell stories about times when I got in trouble as a kid. Um, <laughs> she's always asking Grandma those stories, too. I remember one time, um, 14 or 15 years old, my friend Josh and I had these motorcycles, dirt bikes, and we would cruise in the trails behind our house. And we found a, a rock quarry that had all these like keep out signs and stuff like that. But on the weekend, nobody was working there. It was kind of a defunct quarry anyway. And we were just ripping through there. And all of a sudden, these trucks show up at the entryway and these dudes get out and my chain falls off my motorcycle right at that time. And I'm just like, I am in so much trouble. Josh and I got the chain back on and as the guys were walking down and we ripped out this other trail and never went back there. And it just felt like that feeling of getting away when imminent judgment is, is near, it, it just feels, there's nothing else quite like that in life, right? And whether it's getting away with a speeding ticket with just a warning or, you know, feeling like you're late to something today and then you realize like, oh, the clocks were set back. Woo, I got a, I'm an hour early. Doesn't happen anymore with smartphones, does it? But anyway, that feeling of getting off, of, of, of judgment being overturned just feels so good. In the book of Jonah, we encounter a God of severe mercy, a God of grace. And Jonah's story, of course, is it's entertaining in its own right. Like you've got this rebellious prophet and he runs away from God and then there's a storm and, and, and an unsavory group of sailors and guy goes overboard, he gets eaten by a sea monster. The kids love the part where he gets puked on the beach. Uh, and, and you know, just this amazing things in the story. Uh, it's, if you filled in the gaps with some creative writing, it would be a great movie script if you had some good actors and good CGI. But we so often get wrapped up in that part of the story and debates about whether or not Jonah is only a good story with some ethics in it, or is it, is it something historical? And, and sometimes we get down in that minutia and we forget that Jonah, the story, is part of the canon of Scripture, which means that Jews and Christians alike not only see Jonah as a tale of good ethics, but as a revelation of who God is to human beings. That's what Jonah is. And what does Jonah reveal to us? Well, if it reveals anything, it reveals that God loves people. Even the most violent, rotten, fallen humans you can possibly imagine. Even humans with bad theology and dehumanizing policies. This God loves people so much that he will judge evil as a way of protecting his good creation, but at every opportunity, God waits and God wants people to repent so he can overturn judgment, so that he can offer mercy and grace. This evening, we're going to start the second half of the book of Jonah. Uh, but while it took me five sermons to get through the first two chapters, I'm only going to take three to get to the second two. And part of that's because I'm going to be covering a lot of themes that keep repeating themselves. So I'll, I'll point that, that out. Um, and and the, the rest of the things I'm going to be uh, just pointing out some new themes or some new ideas that, that Jonah presents with us. 
Um, just to illustrate part of the incredible literary genius of the book of Jonah, let's look at how Jonah, uh, the author of Jonah, works together to reinforce its primary message. This, this chart that Zoe's going to put up there is borrowed from uh, directly from uh, a book by the late, great Tim Keller in his book, The Prodigal Prophet. And in this chart, you can see that the first two chapters of Jonah are scene one, and the second two chapters of Jonah are scene two. And I just want you to look at the, uh, the similarities between chapter one and chapter three. I mentioned this last week, but here's a chart so you can actually see it. So scene one, we've got Jonah and the pagans at sea. That's, that's the, the captain and the crew of the ship. And in scene two, the part we're going to look at today, you've got Jonah and the pagans of the city of Nineveh, right? So in one, uh, chapter one, verse one, you've got God's word comes to Jonah. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, you've got God's word comes to Jonah. Uh, I'm not going to read them all because you can see them there. But look at just how, uh, how that symmetry works, how, how balanced this book is. Uh, so we go to the next slide. So we're going to continue on with that scene 1, scene 2 motif. Um, then we've got um, uh, Jonah and the pagans at sea, Jonah and the pagans at, in the city, the same lines. And you can just see how uh, the symmetry continues to work. So chapter 1, verse 4, you've got the word of warning. Uh, and chapter 3, verse 4, you've got the word of warning. You've got response of the pagans. You've got the response of the pagan leaders, so the captain in the ship scene and the king in the Nineveh scene. And in both of those stories, the pagan population responds better to God than Jonah, the Hebrew prophet. And then finally, the third slide um, we're going to look at here is uh, the, the, the place of chapters two and four. And those chapters in their entirety show how God taught grace to Jonah through the fish or the sea creature and, and how God taught grace to Jonah through the plant, which we'll read about in the next couple weeks. So just, just so you have a, a visual of the stuff I was kind of talking about last week, this literary structure. I think outlines like this can be helpful in understanding how the structure of a story communicates its meaning. Um, but let's face it, like if you analyze a story like that to death, it's just sort of well, it literally takes the life and the fun out of it, right? So let's dig into the story world of Jonah. Moving forward, I'm going to do a lot less addressing is this history or is, is this literary art or a parable. We, we dealt with that, I think, pretty well last week. And some of our follow-up conversations, as some of you emailed me questions, I hope that was helpful. Uh, but from now on, I'm taking this as this is, this is in the canon of Scripture. So whether or not you want to take it as a literal historical event or a parable, the meaning is going to be the same. So we're going to dig into the story world and see what this has to say for us. And just as a little recap, let's just uh, talk about what's been happening so far. Jonah is called by God to go and speak a word of warning to Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. And Assyria at that time was one of the most violent and brutal civilizations ever to walk the Near Eastern world. Jonah, understandably, does not want to go to Nineveh. These people have oppressed him and his nation for decades and decades. So he boards a ship, captained by a crew of, uh, of pagans, and it heads in the opposite direction of Assyria toward the land called Tarshish, where he's intentionally unlikely to find any other Jewish people. It was known at that time as the farthest west you could go and is quite the, 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 the pagan capital. 
And there, I think, Jonah, Jonah was thinking to himself, I can go here, I cannot be bugged by people keeping Sabbath or people reading the Bible to me, and I cannot think about God and this horrible command that he's giving, given me. But of course, you know what happens. He gets out at sea. We don't know how long it took. And the storm comes and the, the, the crew deliberates and they ask God for absolution for throwing his prophet overboard. Jonah goes in. The storm is calm. The pagans are saved. They repent. They, they make vows and worship Yahweh. Meanwhile, Jonah is in the belly of a sea creature and he has some sort of mild humbling moment where he at least sees like, Maybe you screwed up, God, but I, I'm thankful for that you saved my life. And, um, and then he's, he's vomited um, from the sea creature onto a beach, presumably a beach back on the Palestinian shore where he came from. And that's exactly where we pick up the story in Jonah chapter 3. That's what we're going to cover today. Here's how that goes. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise. Go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation, which I'm going to tell you, okay? So Jonah arose, and this time, he went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city, a one day's walk, and he cried out and he said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, sat on ashes, and he issued a proclamation, and he said, in Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man or beast, or herd, or flock, taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink water. But both man, both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. Let, uh, let them call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? Maybe God will turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish." That's chapter three. No, there's one more part. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. God who relents with severe mercy, thank you. Thank you for this story preserved for us, faithfully preserved, that it would be scripture for us, that it would communicate to us in the 21st century in Bellingham a little bit about who you are and how we can grow in our trust for you. Help us with that today, Holy Spirit. Amen. So as we begin looking at Jonah chapter 3. I mean, immediately you see how similar it is to Jonah chapter 1. Um, it's like God saying to Jonah, okay, round two, let's try this all over again. And once again, just like in chapter 1 and again in chapter 4, Nineveh is described as a great city. Here we learn the detail that it is a three days walk. 
It's described as a city uh, needing a three days walk. And the detail of Nineveh, Nineveh being a three days walk, isn't so much to do with its size or how long it would take to walk around the city. It has more to do with customary protocols for visiting diplomats or royal visitors or religious visitors like religious leaders, such as a prophet like Jonah. Visitors, for example, to a small town would be uh, expected like the, the... the protocol for a visit to a small town would be like, hey, well, I come into this town, Leonard Street's Covenant Church town, and there's a hundred of us here, and I can just start speaking to the crowds. I just say who I am, where I'm from, start speaking to the crowd. But in a large city like Nineveh, a three-day city, there were certain protocols that were expected. For example, a prophet like Jonah was supposed to be vetted first by the nobles. So they would, they would show him hospitality, gracious hospitality. Hey, come on in. We're going to feed you, even though you're an enemy here. Hebrew, but we're more powerful than you anyway, so we're going to be nice to you. And we're showing you all this hospitality, but really what we're doing is we're finding out what your message is so we could see if you're worthy to bring and safe to bring before the king on day two and then to spread this word to the people. And then on day three, you would be exiting. So that's the three-day protocol. That's a protocol for a big city. That's what the three-day thing means. And the point of such a detail in this story is that even though Nineveh is a three-day protocol city, I mean, Jonah just gets there, probably someone says, hey, who are you? What's your message? And he just says, well, like 40 days and Nineveh's going to be overthrown. That's all he says. And everybody's like, yeah, we repent. Like, we believe in God. I mean, it's, it's absolutely nuts, right? Like, it's, it's insane. And, and, and that's the point of it. It's like, it's a three-day city. He's supposed to go through all these protocols. He says five Hebrew words, eight words in English. And all of a sudden, the whole city is like, you're right. <laughs> We're messed up. We, we need, we need to, to change our ways. That's all he says, 40 days, and Nineveh will be overturned or overthrown, same, same thing. No call for repentance, no mention of God, no instruction about what to do. He doesn't even get a chance to explain like what his message is for or, or any other details. He, he doesn't even need to. Apparently, the people of Nineveh, the most violent and brutal warmongering nation of the ancient world, were pricked to the soul by this word of warning, and they repent by calling for a fast, by wearing sackcloth, which is like, it's kind of like a burlap material that people would wear to be uncomfortable, reminding them like, I have done something wrong. I'm going to intentionally be uncomfortable to remind myself that this is, this is a bigger deal than just saying I'm sorry and moving on. Like, uh, so they wear sackcloth, they sit in ashes, they, they fast from food and water. It's a show of humility. It's absolutely astounding. And it leads to my first point I think we can derive from this story. And that is an encouragement for us to speak the truth. And I'm going to add in love because we are Christians and Jesus has, and Paul have some ways of, they tell us how to speak the truth. So I put in parentheses in love. But Jonah teaches us to speak the truth. Jonah was sent to Nineveh because, you know why, it says in chapter one, God sent him to, to Nineveh because he saw their wickedness. God was aware, very aware of their violence, not only to Israel, but also to their neighbors 
and to themselves. The ancient Assyrians, you have to appreciate, were just horrible people. They would impale living human beings on sharp stakes in such a way that they would make sure that the person was still alive. Like sometimes through an orifice down in this region, use your imagination. And they would chop off pieces of their body and they would stick them in the person's living mouth and tie it around with a cord so that they had parts of their body. They would always leave one arm and the hand attached. Do you know why that is? So that on the road where they were staked up, passersby would come and be able to shake their hand as an act of mockery. This was baked into their culture. This is the type of people the ancient Assyrians were. And a society where this sort of dehumanizing behavior is normal and actually celebrated, you know why we know about these things, don't you? They're in tablets all over the place. They're in what's called boasting accords. And, and, and the people would boast of their, their exploits and doing this to foreign kings and, and, and peasants alike. And, and so a culture that, that perpetuates this sort of thing is not the type of society that cares for the weak and the vulnerable. It's not the type of society that breeds showing compassion or that practices mercy or that practices justice. And so God sent Jonah to Nineveh to speak the truth in the form of a warning, a warning that their actions were going to lead to their destruction. You know, sometimes I think, we think, of God bringing judgment, like he's sitting up, I don't know, like He's sitting up like this, and he's like, I'm going to zap that person or that community or that nation. And you can find examples of that sort of thing in the Bible. Sodom and Gomorrah uh, would be an example. Even in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, that whole story is weird to me. But I mean, sometimes like people do receive judgment like in the moment. But most often, the judgment of God is sort of baked into how he designed the universe. God created a world in which there is consequences to our actions. There are consequences when whole societies, whole tribes of people, whole nations and whole cultures, not just individuals, like behave badly. I mean, just look at history. And in very just general terms, like greed by the few at the top leads to revolution which is always leading to violence, reshuffling of power, and then the oppressed becomes the oppressor, rinse and repeat over and over again. You could say the same thing for racism, revolt, violence, reshuffling of power, repeat. Immorality. Oh, we better bring in the morality police. And then that's too hardcore. So then you start liberalism and then you've got disintegration of the moral fabric. And so we better bring in morality police again and back and forth and over and over again. And you know, in our culture, warnings about consequences for our actions, ooh, that makes us squeamish in PC Bellingham. Who are we to tell other people how to live? Who are we to speak into the lives of other people? We live in a culture that so values the will of the individual that it almost seems more immoral to be the one speaking about immorality than it does to practice immorality. 
We live in a culture that so values the will of the individual that it almost seems more immoral to speak about immorality than it does to practice immorality. We've certainly seen speaking against immorality done poorly, haven't we? The street corner preacher with the sign, you're going to hell, like, I don't know that that's the most effective way to speak truth. In the story of Jonah, we see that God sent Jonah, and we see that by by the almost unbelievable reaction of the Ninevites, that God must have gone before Jonah and prepared the hearts of the Ninevites to receive that warning. So how might we pay attention to where we're invited or have authority to speak into the powers at a societal level? Where are those on-ramps in a democracy like we live? Of course, we've got our vote, we've got our voice, we've got um, contacting representatives, we've got prayer. We can do all of those things on a societal level. And there's a lot better people to talk to about politics and societal change than me. I'm just, I'm just here to root us in scripture. That's where the church comes in and people and their expertise and their training and their hobbies, you know, Talk to Collins or Joe or Tommy about policy stuff. These guys are way better gifted at it than I am. But I, I, I do think there's something there that, that God invites us to speak truth to powers, truth uh, to our society that we live in. It's so messed up to me how, how much money we send as a nation. I don't care who's in the Oval Office. Now Biden is sending money and, and two aircraft carriers and like we're just perpetuating violence. I'm getting out of my lane, I, but, but like, I mean, this is crazy, right? Like, it doesn't matter. It's, it just keeps, it's this big cycle over and over again. But sometimes, and I think oftentimes for most of us, the average person that's sitting here and like, I don't really know what to do in the societal level. Oftentimes the invitation to speak truth is on the individual level. I read recently about a guy who was having a beer with a friend. He's a businessman who found himself away from home um, half of the month, traveling for years and years. And as those years went by, he began to have extramarital affairs. And over the years, he began to justify this behavior. Um, I work so hard. I'm away from home. Everyone, all my colleagues do this. And he, he would justify it. And then he was a, a Catholic when he was back home. And so guilt would rise up. And so then he began to drink to suppress that feeling of guilt. And he's having, he's back home and, uh, and he's having a beer with a friend who lives back home. A guy who he often would share some of these experiences with and, and he could share his heart with. And one day he's at the bar with this buddy, uh, this friend, and he's talking freely and he's sharing some suggestive things that he was doing on the road. And his friend just spoke up and said these simple words, hey man, that's messed up. And then the friend quickly changed the subject. It was awkward. They talked about sports or whatever. And then they went their separate ways. Those words of truth troubled this man to such a degree. He's driving down the road, pulled his car over. Hey man, that's messed up. Snapped him out of his delusion. He called his priest, made an appointment. The next day he's confessing this litany 
of encounters and sins. And those few words, hey man, that's messed up, changed this man's life. I believe those words were in concert with the Holy Spirit and the conviction that brought about a change. There is a severe mercy in speaking truth to other people, especially people we know and love and know that we love them. Whether it's the world powers or to individuals done with genuine care and concern, a word of warning is an act of grace. And so I encourage us to speak the truth in love. Second lesson I'm seeing in Jonah chapter 3 is the importance of repentance with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We know that that's the great commandment, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It seems to me that the Ninevites express, they don't even know Yahweh, but they express a kind of repentance that is whole person's repentance with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, we saw how eagerly the people responded to Jonah's warning, uh, but then we learned that the king himself, the king of Nineveh, uh, was all in on repenting too. Um, He orders even the livestock to join the humans in their fast of both food and water. He even has the cattle wear sackcloth as if, I don't know, they could feel it through their hide or whatever, but whatever, it's the, it's the point, it's the, the image that counts. And, and, and he commands the whole city to call on God and to turn from their wicked ways, literally to turn from their violence, which in Hebrew, by the way, the word violence is Hamas. Turn from your Hamas. The text is in a chiastic structure. Let me just put that up there. Zoe's going to put that uh, graphic on there. And this is, this is one way that Hebrew authors can uh, make an emphasis. And so if you look on here, you've got uh, the A line as he rose from his throne. And that is sandwiched or bookended by the A prime. And he sat down in the dust. So he rose from his throne, his position of power, and he sat in the dust. And then the B and the B prime are the sandwich, the the, the meat and the cheese of the sandwich. That's the best part of the sandwich. That's where the emphasis lies. And so he rose from his throne. He took off his royal robes, that which marks him as king and authoritative and high and mighty. He He took off those robes, put them down, and then he put on sackcloth and ashes, which makes him as low as everyone else. It is a sign of humility. The Ninevites show us what holistic repentance can look like. Repentance does involve admitting a wrong. Like you don't humble yourself as a king or as a community unless you come to some realization that you've got it wrong. And that's just the beginning. Repentance is more than lip service or a mental awareness of a wrong. It's it's deep contrition. It's the act of removing royal robes and calling for fasting, wearing sackcloth, being covered in ashes. It's a way of involving our whole body and our whole community. This is not about groveling or self-deprecation. It's also not about a quick prayer that we shoot up to God, sorry for that, and then on with the next thing. Repentance is more than mental. It's more than merely physical. It's also about changing behavior. 
You know, the word we understand as repentance in English is actually means to turn around or to turn over. Um, sadly, in much of Western Christianity, we've taken repentance to mean something like being sorry for our sins and then asking for forgiveness. And that is part of it. But unless we really seek change, we aren't really repenting. What we're doing is confessing and asking for forgiveness. Nothing wrong with that. It's just not the same thing. The king of, uh, of Nineveh didn't know Yahweh, and he certainly didn't know Jesus. And yet the reason he responds to Jonah's message is found in verse 10. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe God will turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger, and we will not perish. See, in, it, repentance involves all of us. Uh, our minds admit our fault. Our strength involves our bodies to change behaviors and habits. Our souls seek change. Uh, Our souls need change from that which we worship, right? A lot of times if we dig down, down deep beneath our addictions or our unhealthy coping mechanisms, like... If you dig deep enough in any of these these veins of sin that we get stuck in, what we're really doing is worshiping something else. We're not trusting God to make us happy, to make us feel safe, to make us feel secure, and so we're looking for it in these other other things. And so we need our our souls to say, like, I'm not going to find peace and happiness in in, in this chasing of a career, workaholism, uh, sex, uh, drugs, alcohol, uh, whatever it is, achievement. And repentance involves our hearts as well, our deepest desires and hopes. The king had a hope had a hope in that which he didn't even know or understand. How much more might we hope in the grace of God who was born as a person of Jesus the Christ who died for us and offers us new life for all who are repentant? The king says, who knows? Maybe God will turn and relent. We live on the side of the cross in the New Testament in in hand. We can say with boldness and assurance, This we do know. If we repent and trust in Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to grant us life and to usher us into his kingdom. Such good news. And that brings me to the third and final point that I see emerge in the text of Jonah 3. Celebrate. Celebrate the mercy of God. If I were forced to declare what I think the main point of Jonah 3 is. In fact, the whole book of Jonah. I would by hands down say, it is the love and severe mercy of God. In the text, we read that, the Nineveh, that Nineveh was a great city. That word can mean great as in large, but it also has a double meaning. It can mean great as in important. See, in English, we often translate uh, or translate... Uh, we see translations in English uh, describing Nineveh as exceedingly great. That's New American Standard, English Standard Version, New American Standard, uh, New Revised Standard Version, uh, or we see it described as very large, like uh, the New International Version. But commentators uh, and Hebrew experts make the observation that a more literal reading of that sentence would be, now Nineveh was a city of great importance to God, a three days walk. 
See, the ambiguity in the Hebrew there, a large city or important to God probably carries to an original Hebrew reader a double meaning of both size. After all, chapter 4 does tell us that there are 120 residents in Nineveh. Whether or not that's a literal number, it, it means that there's a lot of people in Nineveh. So it is great. It is large. Uh, but, but it also means that those people in Nineveh are important to God. Nineveh is important to God because it's full of people who are made in God's image, however warped that image might be in them. Consider God's love for those people in our lives who you might consider the most unlovable sorts of people. People of different political persuasion than you. People actively oppressing others on the world scale. Russia comes to mind. Israel, Palestine, and the mess that's over there comes to mind. Or even our own complicated and imperfect support of military involvement as a nation. Consider God's love for you when you feel unlovable. He certainly cares. He certainly cares for us if he cares for the Ninevites. How do we know, though? How do we know? Didn't God just send Jonah to Nineveh to speak a word of judgment against them, a word of warning to them? Isn't the message 40 days and you'll be overturned kind of a, a declaration of judgment? This is where we see God's mercy shine through. Make no mistake, the Assyrians deserve justice and judgment. They were horrible, horrible people. But in Hebrew, the word for overturned, 40 days you'll be overturned or overthrown, has a range of meaning. And in Hebrew, that word hafak, ooh, that's fun to say. And you have to make sure that at the end is real guttural. Say it, hafak, hafak. Kids, it's a Hebrew word. <laughs> Thank you, Andy. Yeah. This can mean destroy, uh, overturn, overthrow. You know what else it can mean? Turn around. Bring something or someone to repentance. It can even mean to change from death to life. Similar to how the world word evil is the word live spelled backwards. That's the kind of double meaning, hafach carries in it. And there's a theological reality here that we would do well to celebrate. Even in a warning of judgment, there is a hardwired avenue for mercy, for repentance. The very word here that God has Jonah declare carries both of those meanings. The warning could be taken as a statement, as a statement like, in 40 days you will be overrun as a nation, or it can mean, in 40 days you will be overturned unless you accept this warning and, and repent. Unless you turn over from the hardness of heart to your soft, vulnerable underbelly to the severe mercy of God who makes a way for people to come to him and to receive life. That's so good. God overturns judgment wherever he can, and that is incredibly good news. 
Many Christians today in Mosul, which is Mosul, Iraq, is where Nineveh was, many Christians today in that part of the world continue to report that it is God's mercy in the book of Jonah that has led them to Jesus, that has shown them the kind of God. Usually it works the other way around. Jesus shows us who God is. And for these Christians in Mosul, many of them have reported that this book of Jonah and his severe mercy has pointed them to the kindness of God. As we prepare to participate in communion, I want to take a moment to do two things. The first is for us to pause and silently confess our own need to turn over from our own sin so that we could receive life.